good morning, everyone. He is risen. And for those that have never participated in that ritual, I'll say it again, churches around the world for 2,000 years will often begin Resurrection Sunday with the statement, he is risen in the response of he is risen indeed. So let's do it again together. Friends, he is risen. He is risen. Yeah, and it's such a great morning, an extraordinary morning. I remember when I was a kid, my favorite holiday was Thanksgiving because the food was better. But as I've aged, I've come to love the idea of Easter. I love to come this extraordinary day of celebration to tell and retell a story that's very well known to many of us, right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, fully God and fully man, without blemish on his being, willfully surrenders his life and his body to his enemies, our enemies, goes through bogus trials and receives brutal beatings, was nailed to a cross, was pierced in his side, had thorns shoved on his head, had his back flayed. And he dies, and he lays in a grave for three days, but that's not the end of the story. For three days later, just as he promised, he rose and he conquers death and he reconciles and reconnects us relationally back to the Father. Today is a day that is totally extraordinary. God lays his life down for you and for me, that our God chose nails, that he is the victor over death and evil, that he continues to reign and rule over creation and his universe. And if that's not good enough, that he dies and resurrects and rules, the greatness of the story continues, the greatness of the journey continues, because even though Jesus does all of that, he also then says, and I want you to be a part of me. I want you to be a part of me. I want you to feel invited into this family so you can receive a life that's so extraordinary, so abundant, so full, both now and forever. And so even as we gather, let's pray just a prayer of gratitude to Jesus um, as we continue in worship. So Jesus, we say thank you. We say thank you for um, everything that you did, everything that you did in life and in death and in resurrection. We thank you for your willfulness to give yourself up to your enemies, the willfulness to to submit in humility to God's will, your Father's will, to make yourself available as a substitute for our death, the death that we deserve. So Jesus, as we continue in worship, I pray that our hearts would be full of gratitude this Easter day. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done and what you're doing and what you'll do in our tomorrows. It's for his glory. We all say amen. I love the simplicity of the idea of Easter that churches around the world on this day, I think it's April 17th, are gathered around the world. The Christian church hopefully is gathered and unified on the idea of celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, 
I'm grateful for the simplicity of this day, but I just want to give a little caveat, a little reminder. Now, it's not to uh, bring any sort of like want-want on Easter, but I just want us to be reminded of something. Before, so as an example, before you, um, the service started, I, I, I ran into one of you, um, one of you um, beautiful and lovely members who said to me, oh, it's a big one today. It's a big day today. You better be good. You know, it's all up to you, blah, blah, blah. No mistakes. You know, don't get that squirrel. Like, none of that today. Get focused. It's Easter. Like, this is the high point, and everything depends on your perfection, which is just a nightmare for me to consider. What I kind of laughed it off and shrugged it off because this person isn't the brightest, you know, light in the stars, you know, so it's okay. But as I shared with the band this morning and our beautiful tech team and all of our volunteers, today is simply the next Sunday and what it means for God's people to gather to worship him. It's just the next one. There's no more power dispensed today because it's Easter than was here on Good Friday when we were led by Laurie Landry through uh, our Good Friday service. It's not more um, of God's awesome mercy, power, forgiveness, and love that was dispensed two weeks ago or will be in future gatherings if God will allow us to gather. No. See, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that means the same power of God, uh, of God who rose Jesus from the grave 2,000 years ago, is present with us here. That same power exists now. And tomorrow, when you get in your car and you slug your way to the office and you're dreading the reality that you hate your job and it's just a life suck and you're in your car and you cry out to God, God, I need power. I need you in my life. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in the car with you, granting you his grace and mercy. And later in the week when you're sitting down with your child parenting your child because they decided to feed the baby crayons as like fruit in the, uh, you know, in the fake meal and you need to parent your child about what is right and wrong, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is present with you because he doesn't change. He is a consistent and faithful giver. And the entire story of God and his people is that he relentlessly pursues us in order to make make us whole. In order to make us whole. He is a consistent and faithful giver who desires to rescue us. And why? Because the heart of the message of the cross and the heart of the message of the gospel and the center of the story is love. I remember an old quote, a famous quote by Billy Graham, and he said this. I think we're going to put it up on the screen. God proved his love on the cross when Christ hung and bled and died. It was God saying to the world, I love you. The heart of the story is God's relentless and faithful love for you. And regardless of what it means to walk into the building today, whatever you're carrying in, the God of the universe that raised Jesus from the dead is looking in you and at you and with you and beneath you and above you and all around you saying, you, my child, are loved and you are worth it. You are worth it. You are worth it. The heart of Easter is God's love to the world. For God so loved that he gave because he is a faithful and consistent giver. As I read through passages of Ma- the, the gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John um, in preparation for this morning, I was really, really struck by this passage in Luke. And every time I read the gospels, um, I, I'm grateful that God keeps exposing things to me, pointing things out, showing me the value and the depth of the truth of his word. 
And so I found myself in the book of Luke, and we want to kind of park the car there. I want to just kind of read, uh, Larry read through the, the kind of the resurrection account, and then later in that chapter, uh, Jesus is going to appear to his disciples in the upper room. And if we remember a little bit of context, uh, Jesus um, marches his 12 disciples back into Jerusalem. They're totally afraid of this because they know in that great city is, um, is an enemy that longs to kill Jesus. Uh, his 12 disciples are clearly um, freaking out and carrying all kinds of anxiety about the idea that Jesus is going to leave them and that Jesus is going to die. They totally, uh, they're not yet understanding that Jesus is going to come back. Uh, there's a, a lot of mystery. There's a lot of um, um, uh, an inability uh, to trust. There's a lot of doubt in their relationship. But they also don't want to be hurt or killed themselves. If they're going to arrest and beat and kill Jesus, they're going to do that to me too. So Jesus enters into the city and gives his life up and then they scatter. And they're totally living in fear, looking over their shoulders, wondering, am I next? Am I next? Jesus is nailed to a cross and, he's, and he dies. And these two men, Joseph of Arimathea, take Jesus down and they, and, and they wrap him um, for his burial and they place him into a tomb and they roll the rock over the tomb and Jesus is lying in the tomb. And these 12 guys are freaking out like, uh-oh, our boss, our leader, our rabbi, our Messiah is dead. What's going to happen to us? And the accounts that we read is that Jesus begins to appear. He first appears to women, which is an extraordinary part of the story. And then, he, then, and then John and Peter, they're running around looking for Jesus. And then we come back into this room where they're gathered. Perhaps it's the upper room where they shared the Passover meal and they're going to gather again. It says this, while they were still talking about what they had heard and experienced, Jesus himself stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. There's a little bit of mystery in the statement of how he got there. Jesus is a resurrected body. They're in a room, locked doors, you know, windows drawn, in the dark. They don't, you know, no one's getting in, no one's getting out. And while they're in there, Jesus just sort of appears to them. And that would be pretty freaky as well. And so Jesus' first words to them is peace. Irene. The Greek word for peace is this word irene. The New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The correlation between irene and the Hebrew is the word shalom. That is a word that's often familiar to us. Shalom is defined as peace. It's defined as this um, opportunity for contentment. But it's more than that. Years ago, we did a study on this word, and we called it vibrant wholeness. It's your whole being, body, soul, mind, and spirit, skin, flesh, thoughts, aches, all of it in perfect balance and contentment and all of the relationships that you can have with God and with others and with self and even with creation. Peace is the first word he gives them. In the Old Testament, the word appears almost 300 times. In the New Testament, it appears almost 100 more times. It is, we could argue that the word irene and shalom and peace is the most central word of longing for God's people for years and generations and millennium. Peace, this idea that we could get back to this place of contentment. It all goes back to the garden and our first parents. There's accounts of, uh, of, of our first parents walking in the garden with God in the cool of the day. The relationship with God is solid and balanced and perfect and at peace. And it says they were naked amongst each other and they felt no shame. And so there was a good relationship with one another and with themselves because they didn't feel shame. It didn't exist. And then God said, I want you to work the soil and take care of the animals and, and take care of creation for me. And there was relationships up and out and in and down that were perfect. And then they sinned. 
And that sin came before the presence of God. And so God showed up in the garden. And what did Adam and Eve do? They hid because this relationship was broken. And they covered themselves because they felt dirty and shameful. They had a low self look. And then when God said, what happened? They blamed each other. She made me do it. And then God said, okay, Adam, as you go out and work the earth, the sun is going to bake on your body and the thistles and the thorns are going to crush you. And to Eve, you, when you give birth, it is going to hurt like hell. And that relationship is broken as well. And so all of that, and so God then sends them out of the garden and kicks them out on their journey and their prolonged journey is a journey longing to get back to a place of shalom. They had it and they lost it. And I would argue that everybody made in the image of God, their truest and deepest longing is to get to a place, to a space of absolute peace and contentment with God and self and others and even creation. And that feels heavy because our reality is it's not that way. It's not that way. My professor, Neil Plantiga, says a very, very famous and simple statement, sin is the vandalism of shalom. Think about that. Shalom existed and then somebody went and sprayed and tagged it. And now it's dirty and it's marred and it's broken. And so what is the plan of God to restore shalom? I know I've told my story in the past. When I was a teenager and in college, I was really, really longing and hustling for my own worth and acceptance. I had a, I had a really good childhood. I, I have incredible stories of fun and adventure. But man, did I start to realize at a young teenage age that there was, there was an ache, there was an emptiness in me that I, that I struggled to fill. I didn't know it. I didn't have language for it. I didn't know what the words were. But man, I walked and journeyed into a thousand spaces to take a thousand things in, to digest a thousand tastes and chemicals, and to wrap my arms around a thousand people that would offer me comfort and care because there was this deep longing in my heart that I was not at peace with myself or the world. And I hustled to find something to make me balanced. And I went after it all. And it was fine for a day or a moment or an hour or a weekend. But the next week, the ache was there and the hustle continued. I just wanted to be called good. I just wanted to be told that I was valuable and I was worthy. And the hustle and the chase took, it, was, it, was, it, it, it broke me. It broke me. And then I met this pastor who said, Mike, you know, you've tried everything else in the world. Why why don't you try this Jesus thing? I dare you. See what happens. I mean, you, you have hustled and chased for acceptance and worthiness your, for, for these last weeks. Try this. Don't just see Jesus, embrace him. Don't just look at Jesus, uh, taste and see his goodness. And he said, and if you have a real encounter with a living, resurrected Jesus, you'll find peace. And so I set out on this, instead of just giving up th this other decadent life, I, I sort of did both for a while. And that was really awkward. It was really awkward to 
participate on the one hand in things that I was choosing for myself, you know, Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, and then stumble into church on a Sunday morning. But I did it. And eventually, the balance began to tip. And the balance began to tip when I began to read and pray and seek the Lord of the cross and to seek the Lord of resurrection. To seek the Lord that would show up in the midst of my hiding and say, peace for you. I love what the great sociologist Brené Brown says about hustle and worth. She says this, you can either walk inside your own story and own it or you can stand outside your story and hustle for your worth You can walk inside the story, the journey that God has put you on, and own it. And the invitation is come, walk the journey with Jesus, and he will give you an abundant life. Or you can stand outside of it and hustle for your worthiness. And that was my story. The invitation of Jesus to his disciples then is the same as now, is that Jesus stands there and says, peace, shalom. Shalom. You are loved. Let's continue in the story. Verse 37 says this. It says, uh, they were startled and frightened, right? And uh, while, they were, yep, while they were still talk, uh, uh, talking about this, he stood amongst them and said, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? And he says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself, touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you and I have. So the first thing he says is, what are you confused about? I told you about all of this, but somehow it didn't stick. The beauty of this passage is just a reminder of this to me. I can read and see and read and see and read and see and taste and see and read and read and read and still miss it. Yet, God continues to show up and says, it's going to be okay. I'm going to give you another chance. Because our God is a God of second and third and 500th chances. Over and over and over and over. And he says, look and see. Now, the word for look here is this word, orao, which is an interesting word because I expected when I did my deep study in the Greek language and when I, when, often when I preach, I'll take the language, I'll pull it up in the Greek, and I'll, I'll do a quick translation of it. I'll look at some of my study guides to see if there's anything unique in it, and I expected it to be this word, blepo. Blepo is to see with your eyes. It would be like, hey, look at the beautiful windows we now have in the back of the arena. I can see them with my eyes. They are gorgeous. What a creative idea. Or Rod Weimer, thank you for putting such beautiful art up on the wall it's for sale. That was a free pitch. You can go see that after church. (laughs) But the word orao also can mean to look with your eyes, but it's only the beginning. When you substitute this word, the intention is this, look with your eyes so that your spirit can perceive. It is physical that becomes spiritual. He doesn't say, look with your eyes. He says, no, 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 no. Get inside the wounds of my hands and understand what I'm doing for you. Feel me. Feel me. Understand the plan that I have for you. This is extraordinary and almost sacrilegious. You see, all of the gods of antiquity, they would, all the gods that were worshipped in the history of the world up until this time were gods that lived far, far away, way beyond the clouds, in, in, in spaces that would never intersect with their creation. And they existed as slaves to, to do the bidding for the gods. The gods would never come down. The gods would never touch you. The gods would never look at you. No, no, they would hide away. They would never come near to you. 
And this Jesus, this God shows up and says, not only is I'm here with you, put your hand inside my wound. Feel me and me with you. Look at me with your eyes, but understand me with your heart. Perceive me with your being, with your emotion, with your senses. Taste and see my goodness. I am letting you in, for I am not far. I am not far. For I am not far. I am right here, and the invitation is to be in. It is extraordinary. Uh, Often in older translations, the word look and see will be the word behold. Behold. That's a great word of the year. That's Ann Laurie's word of the year. Behold. Now, Ann's been reminding me of her word because as a high-functioning extroverted seven, I forget her word every day. Um, I forget my word, too, and so Ann has to remember. What is my word? I don't remember either. Yeah, it was good, you know, a few months ago. I'll think of it later. I probably put, wrote it down somewhere on a piece of paper. Um, but Anne's word is behold, and so I've been mindful of this word when I see it, behold. And now I'm going to do something that is, um, I don't know, maybe corny, but it's not mine. I didn't write it. I don't own it. And in fact, the first time I heard it, I thought it was really, really corny. Now I can't shake it. So 20, 22 years ago, I listened to a, a two-night talk by a pastor teacher named Louis Giglio, who's part of the Passion Network. And but he, was youth work, uh, he trained youth workers for a long time. And Louis is one of my first teachers, one of my first um, mentors from afar. And Louis um, talks about this word, behold. And it began when he began, to, uh, when he, would, um, he was reading scripture, and I think we have uh, John 1.14, and this is really where it comes from. And uh, if you can put that up, uh, Aaron, I think we have that passage. I think I sent you that. Oh, we didn't. You know what? That's on me. I remember I told you I had to make a new slide. That was that one. Amen. Praise Jesus. It's Easter, baby. I know. It's all going downhill. All right. He was reading in the book of John. He was reading the Gospels, and it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory. The glory is the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he started thinking about this word, behold, and, and um, begotten, and uh, became. And he remembered that when, G- when God introduces himself to Moses in the Old Testament, he tells Moses, when Moses is like, all right, I met you, I'm meeting you, you want me to go tell your people stuff, and, and the Pharaoh, what's your name? What do I call you? And God says, just refer to me as the I am. Just call me I am. I am? That's kind of present tense strange. And he's like, right, because I was yesterday, and and I am now, and I will be tomorrow, but there's not a word that can encompass the totality of my awesomeness, so just call me I am. And if we translate I am, translate I am is be. It's be. And Louis Giglio, in his weird corniness, said, I began to pray to God as B. And he would say things like, good morning, B. I slept last night and you didn't. And you watched over my life and my city. Today is a day that you've given me, B. Let me honor you with it. I'm going to work now, B. Would you come with me? Thank you, B. Thank you, B. Thank you, B. And then he began to read in the New Testament and the word B came. Oh, B, B came. And we beheld 
or we held B. And B holds us. The glory as the one and only B gotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And the word B came, and B came to dwell amongst us. And we held B, and B holds us. And B does these things because he's gotten of the Father. It's super, super nerdy and dorky, and you'll not be able to shake it for the rest of your life. <laughs> but there's something extraordinary about this idea of beholding and holding B. Have you ever seen an embrace between two people that you know that you're in the company and the presence of something mysteriously divine? Have you ever seen two people hold on to each other and you just know what you're watching is something so otherly that you can't express it? A lot of you know that my story intersects at Columbine High School 23 years ago. I was a youth pastor all of six months and I got a call one morning about 11.15 that two boys walked into the school with hand grenades and shotguns and the school was under attack. And I raced in the car down the street and got stopped and ran down onto the campus and spent the rest of the day hustling to reunite families with students in our youth group. We had about 20 kids in school that day, and throughout the day we had found all of them except for one. Her name was Nicole. We couldn't find her. And as the day went on, less kids came out of the school. And I was with her mom and her dad and her brothers, and we couldn't find Nicole. There were no cell phones. We just couldn't find her. No one knew where she was. I raced all over the city of Littleton on rumors where she might be. I knew, I, I drove like hundreds of miles an hour through roads because I knew there were no cops given tickets that day. I hustled to so many houses with different family members trying to see if she showed up. The phones had all crashed, so we couldn't, we were, we, we couldn't find her. Hours. Columbine started about 11.30. About 4, 4.30 in the evening, we still hadn't found Nicole. Still hadn't found her. And then there was a rumor that one more bus of kids, one more van of kids, had been found locked in a classroom, and they were hiding, and they were waiting for help to show up, and they didn't know it was over, and they were too scared to leave. And so with her mom and with her dad, I went to the library adjacent to the school, and I held their hands as we stood with the library doors behind us and the van came out and each kid came out one by one. And the parents would run to their kids if they found them. And I just held and waited because Nicole was not getting out of that van quick enough for me. And then she appeared. And her dad, who was a big, strong man, let go and ran and grabbed her and picked her up and he squeezed her and he wailed a sound that I hear in my dreams. He wouldn't let go of her. And she just kept saying, Dad, I was so scared, but I knew that you would come. And her brothers and her mom, and we, just had, we were just holding her. And I witnessed a divine beholding. And in our frightened state of fear and anxiety and pain, the Lord is going to show up. And he's going to run to you and he's going to wrap his arms around you and he's going to wail on your behalf and he's going to say, I know you're scared, but I'm going to hold on to you. And we beheld the glory 
and beheld us. Let's continue, verse 40. Whew. 23 years ago, and I'm not over it. I'm still not done processing that. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still not believe, this is great, and while they still not, did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, isn't that funny? He showed them, and because of their joy and amazement, they didn't believe? That's the weirdest sentence. Translation really should say this, they were in such awe of this resurrection body and being in their midst that they couldn't comprehend what they were seeing. They, were, they couldn't find the words to explain it. And so Jesus, to squelch their anxiety, said, do you have any Pop-Tarts? I don't know, like, do you have anything to eat? What? And so they're like, we're going to give you the best that we have. It is a piece of broiled fish. So disgusting. They're like, it's just a piece, too. It's the tail, but it's all we got, but you're welcome to it. And he took it and ate it in their presence. I mean, the scriptures are funny, so let's keep going. Let's go to the next verse. Uh, oh, no, go back. Um, he took it and ate it. Um, I don't have verse 44. Can you go to, there you go. And so he said to them, this, I told, uh, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Now he goes back and says, now I, I just want to remind you of what you were supposed to know. Everything must be fulfilled what is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And that word fulfilled kind of stood out to me because I realized that when I, um, I don't think I have my Bible with me, but if we look at the, the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible, from Genesis all the way through Malachi, so um, the law and the, and the wisdom and the, and the historical narratives and the poems and the, and the proverbial comments and the, uh, and the larger uh, prophets and the smaller prophets, all of it is pointing to hope. Adam was a good first parent, but he was imperfect, so Jesus is the perfect parent. Moses was a great leader. Jesus is a better leader. Abraham was a great father of the... Jesus is a better version of that. David was a great king. Jesus is the perfect king. The prophets were good at declaring God's um, truth and forgiveness and redemption. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. All of the Old Testament is pointing that the Messiah is going to come. And that's the statement. We've been studying Jonah for the last 40 days, the last seven, eight weeks. And even Jesus says this in Matthew 12, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. See, there's this idea that there was this longing that the Messiah would come. And they waited and waited and waited. And they wanted a, uh, they wanted a leader and a priest and a prophet and a king and a saint. They wanted all of it. But they also wanted Jesus to show up the way that they wanted him to show up. Friends, this is a problem that we have with Jesus and God, is that we're often defining him in our public sphere, in, our, in the privacy of our mind, in the public square, of how we want our God to be, not actually who he is. I am guilty of trying to define God in my own way. I want him to show up one way, but he shows up another way. I saw this tweet earlier this week from this guy named Ben uh, Kremner, we want the war horse, but Jesus rides in on the donkey. We want the eagle, but the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. We want to take up swords, but Jesus takes up a cross. We want the roaring lion, but he shows up as the slaughtered lamb. And we keep trying to arm God, but God keeps disarming us. I just want to leave that up there for a minute. I think sometimes we, we, we create this idea of who we think God ought to be and not what, how, what benefit it is to me. 
I can be a big fan of God riding in like a war hero and crushing my enemies. Amen? Amen. There's a lot of that going around today. The intersection of church and power is so unlike the Jesus gospel. We feel like it's our responsibility and duty to capture Jesus for my movement. I can be a fan of the all-powerful God presiding over my issues, believing that the power that he has can be fully displayed and fully dispensed at any moment. I can be a fan of entitled outrage, believing that I'm owed something. I can be a fan of Jesus and the Lord being the king of the jungle, and he has all these weapons at his disposal, and he's going to crush my enemies, and not just my enemies, people that I just generally don't like. But yet Jesus is the embodiment of all that was longed for. And the good news of Jesus is that his plan is so much better than mine. He enters meek and lowly and humble and focused and determined and fixed and confident. He trusts the story and trusts the storyteller. He enters as absolute peace. Do you guys remember what the Hebrew word for peace, you remember what the name for the Hebrew word for peace is? Yeah, peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, do you know what it is? Irene. It's just a quiz to see if you guys were paying attention a little while ago. He journeys straight to the cross. He journeys straight to the grave. He gives up his body like a sacrificial lamb. He shows his power and his grace and his mercy, and he invites us in. And in the invitation, he keeps disarming me and making himself so much more beautiful. So much more beautiful. What is the God that you have created in your mind? What is the expectation of that God for you? Is it the God way or is it your way? Friends, I want to tell you, after a life of hustle, God's way is a lot better than mine. A lot better than mine. Let's just finish the passage. Verse 45 says this. Uh, he said, okay. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. And if you ever wondered, like, what's the why of Easter? I think this is the why of Easter. Simon Sinek says why is the most important question. Not what, not how, not who, but why. Here's the why of Easter. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. That's the why of Easter. The Messiah will suffer and rise again. It's the bookends of Holy Week. He will suffer at the hands of his enemies. He will be beaten and he will die and he will be buried, but he will rise. That is the, that is the event that takes place in Holy Week. He suffers and then he rises. For what? So that repentance and forgiveness of sins can be made real and whole to the people of God, to all the nations. You want to know what the why of Easter is? It's this. Jesus has to suffer and die and resurrect so we can have life. That's it. And he does that from a heart of love. The why of Easter is that God chose this path and that Jesus participates in this journey designed and ordered by the Father. That Jesus willfully walks up to this cross, this tree, this death machine and gives himself up so I can have an abundant life. That is the most extraordinary story in the history of the world. And he chooses that so forgiveness of sins and repentance can be the story of the world.
I've been reading some N.T. Wright this week. He's a minister and theologian in Europe, and he wrote a book called Preaching the Cross in the Dark Times, and he says this. I just thought this was interesting. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story of Jesus launching his kingdom with dark powers striking back in various ways. He gave himself for our sins to set us free from this present evil. Victory through substitution is the name of the game. Victory through substitution is the name of the game. Go to the next one. That is how the cross, victory through substitution, enables us to be an Easter people. It isn't about being saved so we can go to heaven. This isn't about this idea of just like evacuating. No, 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 no. It enables us to be Easter people, so we, not so we just be saved for heaven, which is true, but about being saved from our sin and its entails so that we can be heaven on earth people already here and now. This isn't about some uh, exit strategy. This is about life here now. The offer and the gift and the promise of Jesus resurrected is you can have your sins forgiven and you can have a relationship with God right now. You don't have to wait. It's now. It's now. It's now. I'm so grateful for Jesus. I'm so grateful for the things that he is doing and the ways that he invites us in. Look at this. The message of Easter is that God's new world is unveiled in Christ and you are being invited into and to belong to it. Friends, I need you to hear this. You are invited. There is space for you at the big people table of God at the Easter dinner. And that space has got your name on it, and he loves you, and he loves you, and he loves you, and he doesn't want you to be identified by your shame or your sin, or he wants you to be identified by a resurrected Jesus that took it all away and is making all things new, and who beholds you with the love of the divine that will hold you now and forever and will squeeze you and invite you in and say, peace, peace is actual. It's here. It's here. Come, come and be a part of that story. Would you pray with me? So Lord, as we continue and worship this Easter Resurrection Sunday, may we do so with just great hope as we sing back to you songs and poems written to stir and motivate us and move us, may your presence be big and real and alive. And may we celebrate that B has come and we can hold B. And because B is gotten of the Father, we and find the abundant life. Praise be to Jesus. And so may our songs bring you delight, Jesus, because you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our worship. Thank you for Resurrection Day and all God's people said. Amen. One.